0: This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by the new Starz series, The Girlfriend Experience, a seductive look inside a world where intimacy comes at a very high cost. Binge the entire season beginning April 10th, only on Starz.
1: The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers.
2: Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll talk about when comedy stopped being funny and the latest season of Broad City. Plus, we're joined by the Paths, Michelle Monahan. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at Here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And we have a special guest this week Vulture editor Alex Jung. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Hi, Alex. Matt. Um, so before we get into things this week, we wanted to just talk a little bit about Gary Shandling, who passed away last week. At 66 years old, and as of this taping, I believe the cause of his death is unknown.
0: Yeah, it's. What I think so, although that may change by the time people hear this. Yeah,
2: but Matt, you wrote a really beautiful tribute to him uh, last week, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about his influence on comedy.
0: Yeah, Gary Shandling's death hit me really hard, um, partly because it was unexpected, but also because there are certain artists where you're aware of the long shadow that they cast, and other ones... Where the length of that shadow only becomes apparent when they go without warning. (laughs) And Gary Shandling, unfortunately, fell into the second category. A lot of stand-up comedians fantasize about having a, a, a television show of any kind. And if they really, really want to fantasize, they think that it would be a Pantheon show. And Gary Shandling had two of those. He had its Gary Shandling Show, which ran for four years on Showtime. Uh, 1988 to 92, I think. And then uh, he followed it up almost immediately with The Larry Sanders Show, which ran from 92 to, I think, 97 or 98. And both of these were incredible. Gary Shandling's show was sort of in the tradition of something like The Jack Benny Show, I mean, in the way that he acknowledged the audience. And the whole idea of it was, this is a sitcom, this is a sitcom, it's all artifice, what are you people laughing at? And he would address the studio audience directly, and he would take you on a tour of the sets, and he would, like, you know, demand changes in the script sometimes if things weren't going his way. He would have guests on the show um, who acted uh, under their own names. They were essentially playing themselves in the way that Gary Shandling was. And one of the most famous was Gilda Radner, who he had on to talk openly about her cancer, which was kind of incredible. And of course, she managed to make it funny because she's Gilda Radner. <laughs> um, and then he goes on to do um, The Larry Sanders Show, which is along the same lines but different in that it shoots uh, the behind-the-scenes scenes at this uh, fictional talk show um, on film in the style of a movie, like a traditional movie. And then whenever you're looking at what's happening on the show itself, you're seeing video, and they're cutting back and forth between the two. And But it's in such a way that it makes the point that um, realism and artifice are kind of— irrelevant at a certain point especially when you're in Hollywood and it's also just such a merciless comedy like everybody on that show <laughs> was a kind of a kind of an asshole really I mean and there were a few people who were nice and put upon but it was really about power relationships and um, delusion and I feel like um, it was the first great kind of unlikable funny show
2: yeah, what shows on HBO, you, What you shows know? would you say that it it influenced?
0: You know, it's hard to prove these things, but I feel like there's a direct line from Seinfeld and its Gary Shandling show, which were on around the same time, to the Larry Sanders show, and then on from there to stuff like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, and hmm. you know, where the point of like these are obviously extremely different shows, but ultimately the end, the takeaway is characters do not have to be likable if they're interesting.
2: Interesting, I feel like. Most of what I've read has, has not made that connection to drama. It's made them more obvious, like it Community, inspired 30, 30 Rock, Rock or, you know, shows that are more like just spiritually similar and in, in kind of a more obvious way.
0: I think that's all true, but I also think that the Larry Sanders show is connected to a really particular kind of comedy, which came up in America in the 60s and 70s, like Mike Nichols and Elaine May, stuff like uh, The Heartbreak Kid. Uh, which is an Elaine May film with Charles Grodin. And Grodin uh, was good friends with uh, Gary Shandling. And that he was also like, Grodin had his own version of the sort of comedy where it was like that very dour, um, self-important, like send-up of, of the kind of male authority figure. Like that was his deal. Albert Brooks was a very good friend of Gary Shandling's and Albert Brooks moved in that kind of tradition. In the 60s and 70s particularly, you saw a lot of these kind of comedies that were, you weren't sure if you were supposed to really laugh at them you know like they sometimes mm-hmm. they were funny but other times they were just sort of excruciating mm-hmm. and um the larry sanders show was the first show that i remember watching that i would later describe as ra- basically radio television in the sense that it's a television show but for me a lot of the time it's radio because i can't stand to look at it like it's too painful yeah, like-, like what the people are going through they're so it's <laughs> just so uh, uncomfortable and agonizing, and like it 's like crawl under the couch humor,
2: like the comeback kind like of, the
0: comeback yeah. and like girls and mm-hmm. like you know, a lot of hBO shows like extras uh have that sort of quality um but also uh the British version of the office is is is, is heavily influenced by the Larry Sanders show and the American version of the office and Parks and Recreation, and a lot of the shows that are kind of in that vein. The Larry Sanders show was never technically a documentary, but it did have that sort of fly on the wall feeling. Mm-hmm. The thing that jumped out most to me about his humor was the honesty of it and the way that he didn't cut any characters, any breaks. And there was never any character who was the audience surrogate like a Mary Taylor Moore on The Mary Taylor Moore Show or Bob Newhart on Bob Newhart or Judd Hirsch on Taxi, where, like, they're the calm center of the storm. Mm -hmm. Um, Gary Shandling's characters were at the center of these shows, and Gary Shandling's characters, like Albert Brooks's characters and Woody Allen's characters before them, were... um, Kind of abrasive. They were, and they were pathetic a lot of the time. And, you know, you couldn't take your eyes off of them. And like Michael Scott on The Office, the only thing that kept you from hating them was your realization of how lonely they were. I hope this will be rectified, but a lot of people um, who are, I guess, under 20 don't know Gary Shandling mm-hmm. except as, you know, the guy who says Hail Hydra in the Marvel films, you know? Right. And, and, um, and that's great. He's really funny in that, but there was a lot more to him and I hope people discover it. I really can't stay. I'm actually off to the post office to pick up a package. I think it's uh, another book from my book club. And, uh... (laughs) That's right, I read. What, is that so startling? I happen to... I happen to think there's a lot more to life than just watching television. You can read about it, too. (laughs) Did you know that? That's why I belong to the television biography Book of the Month Club. The (laughs) TVBBOTMC. I'm sure you've heard of it. And, uh...
3: Let's take a look. This is the theme to Gary show. The theme to Gary show. Gary called me up and asked if I would write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? How do you like <laughs> the theme to Gary show? This is the theme to Gary show The opening theme to Gary show This is the music that you hear As you watch the credits We're almost to the part Of where I start to the whistle Then we'll watch his Gary Shandling show
2: Before we get into Broad City, um, I um I wanted to talk a little bit about what a comedy needs to do in order to stay consistently funny. And... You know, can we just start a little bit by talking about, you know, what are the elements that make for a great comedy? The one thing that I felt is you do need to have some element of dramatic storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, there needs to be some... some I think kind. now you do. Now you do maybe more than before with sitcoms that kind of have the same beats episode to episode.
0: Characterization is key. Yeah. Characterization is key, I think, even more so than on a drama. Like character is always important on every show, but it's it's absolutely critical. Character and... The chemistry of the performers who are playing those characters. And if you don't have that, you're sunk.
2: And characterization, I think, can be knowing who these characters are and feeling like they're your friends in a a way, or like you know them, but also not feeling like they're making the same predictable jokes all the time. I think for me, this is, I love Parks and Recreation, but I, I got to a point, I think, in the fourth season where I was like, it kind of lost a little bit of the magic to me because I felt like all the characters were playing the same beats in this way that just didn't feel as magical to me as it did in the beginning.
0: It's rough. It's rough. And and the saying about comedy that drama is about how people change and comedy is about how people never change. I think that's true. And I think a lot of times it's treated as a safety net in comedy, where as long as we find creative ways to have people end up in the same place that they were always in, we can keep going forever. But I do think at a certain point people want to see—if not forward motion exactly—but they want to they want to keep revealing new shadings. And if you start to reveal shadings that are basically the same shadings that have been revealed in previous seasons, but they've just changed the details, I think that's when people start to check out. Yes,
2: yes, exactly. Um, yeah, you want to—you don't necessarily need like an insane amount of dramatic change to happen, but you want to see them feel things in a more. S- dramatic serious way you know like even on friends say like elements of ross and rachel's relationship were really emotional you know and that's something that really deepened the show for me yeah a lot of it
0: seems to come down to duration and you know can you keep can you keep this thing going at the level that people are used to and there are shows that i think um kept it going for a really long time at a very high level of quality i think the american office did for quite a long time i think um you know, people always say The Simpsons lost it, but it's like, well, yeah, but The Simpsons has been going for, like, right. longer than most Americans have been alive, right? <laughs> you know? I mean, that's... True. You got to cut them a break for 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 uh, just this unbelievable duration. Um,
2: I think, for me, a show that I've felt has been pretty consistent is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Yeah, which, you know, the st- I think it's because the stakes are so crazy high in every episode. Like, nothing... <laughs> Yeah, It's not even that different from episode to episode. They never change, but it's so incredibly specific, every episode, and it's just a fascinating feat to watch.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, There are some shows that are on the air right now where I kind of wonder how they're going to handle this, like uh, Girls. You know, Girls has what? One more season? One more season. Yeah. Yeah. It feels about right.
2: Yeah, I think it's actually a perfect number of seasons for Girls. I think this season, everyone is saying is the strongest one yet, which I... I tend to agree with because they've let each character go on their own journey and you're really able to feel more of an arc happening with them moving from 22 year olds to mid 20 year olds. You really feel that change happening more.
0: Yeah. And it feels like they're leaning into that reality of being in your twenties and the circle of friends that you had when you were right out of college is not going to hold. Yes. (laughs) You know,
2: but yeah, I feel like What we were saying earlier with dramatic storytelling becoming more of a thing now, that's something we saw with You're the Worst last season, where the creator of the show talked about this openly, that he added a a depression storyline because he knew he had to do something really, really kind of bold in order to get people, to keep people interested. But it was also
1: brilliant. Yeah, it was.
2: It was totally brilliant. Because
1: I I, I started the season and I was... Eh.
2: I was mm-hmm. like this is a f-
1: this is fine, but it's it's what you've already seen. It doesn't really feel any new and then when they started working into the depression storyline, I felt surprised and engaged, and it felt like a wallop in a great way, yeah. yeah, you sort of saw it coming, and then you sort of thought about old episodes where you could see indications of it being built, and then it sort of layered really beautifully, yeah, and I loved it.
2: The new era of the sadcom is. Sadcom, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. Well, I
1: think I that think a sadcom requires a certain amount of character development that sort of moves beyond the, the sort of re- repetition of a ch- character. You, you do expect a character to be different now a little bit more, like on Girls. Or even like I can expect Master of None's second season to be different too. They're all going to be making decisions where you do know the characters and you feel like you know them, but they're making decisions that feel different like more like a dramatic arc than they do. Like
2: Catastrophe added a time jump for season two, which is such a, you know, it places us at a completely different place with these characters. And yeah, Yeah. it's it's interesting. I I
1: spoke with Sharon Horgan about the second season, which will come out later. Um, (laughs) And she was saying how she and Rob were really scared about repeating themselves or doing the same thing because they usually get bored with sitcoms when they see the same thing happening again. And so it was important for them to do something that felt new and refreshing and interesting again. Yeah, um, So I think, I feel like that's just in the culture in a lot of ways of what people might expect from a sitcom now too.
2: Do you think a sitcom will ever just go away? That kind of structure of, you see these characters start with a, pro- a problem maybe, and then by the end of the episode it resolves itself or doesn't when we're well, I,
0: I would be tempted to say yes were it not for the uh the presence of a lot of really good network mm-hmm. sitcoms right now, many of them on right. ABC. Right. That True. that are ABC's ex- killing it. extremely old fashioned in the way that it, it's weird because like shows like um Blackish and fresh off the boat, and the Goldbergs are um, a very old-fashioned in terms of their tempo and their structure, but but very new in terms of the stories that they tell. Mm -hmm. And it's great to see that that mix of old and new. And I'm fascinated by the Goldbergs. I've become kind of I think I have a little (laughs) crush on the Goldbergs actually. (laughs) And it's every episode of that show is basically the same. It's basically the same. They've got a, you know an A-plot and a B-plot that involves some kind of crisis of faith involving um, one of the family members' ability to believe in the family, to believe in the family, to believe in one of the parents, to believe in their sibling, whatever. And then their faith is reaffirmed at the end, and there's a montage. There's like a sentimental music montage at the end, and the narrator, Patton Oswalt, chimes in and tells you what lessons you learned. And it's exactly like a show that would have been in the 80s and the the tone and the storytelling is very much like a kind of a John Hughes model. Like, but you know, that was my era of movie going was the 80s, you know, my formative era. And I remember like it seemed like every damn comedy that I saw had that kind of structure. It's like the last five minutes were music like uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Mm, it's like mm-hmm. a crazy farce until the end when you find out that John Candy is homeless and they're playing every time you go you take a piece of me with you and yeah. and all of a sudden the entire audience is like tears are squirting out of their face, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you know you're being manipulated but you just roll with it.
2: So with Broad City, I've I've been thinking about this a lot with this third season. I had this moment where I just was watching it and I realized I wasn't finding everything as funny anymore as I had in the, last, in the first two seasons. And I think it's a number of things. And I don't know if it's just me. But for me, it kind of felt like there was a lot of fan service going on with the like, yes, 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 queen kind of stuff where it's overused. And a lot of the types of jokes that the characters make are basically the same jokes. We've, we've gotten to know these characters so well in two seasons. Like we really right. we really know who they are a lot of being like I'm into Abby and want to sleep with her I love Abby's ass that kind of thing I've heard it so many times it's just it's not funny anymore
0: it's starting to become uh, sad
2: yeah it's it's (laughs) a little it's a little sad watching them because it feels like they're also not as into it but I, I like maybe they're maybe they're over it a little bit.
1: Well it feels like they're overacting to compensate I was for gonna the lack say, of good writing.
0: Yeah. They seem to be what I was noticing watching this new season was they seem to both be yelling all the time. Yes. And uh, it's like, and I thought it was my imagination, so I'm glad of, that you said that. No, I feel like they're like really trying to make up well,
2: Especially <laughs> Alana, I think. And you know, it's a it's a hard thing to do to have to act at on that level of intensity all the time. But I mean, I just feel like the kind like she's playing a shtick kind of that has become like she feels like she just is going, going, going and will malfunction if she stops. Like, right. I well, do She's know.
1: becoming more two dimensional over time to me. Yes. Rather than more complex. I totally agree. And and the-
2: it was weird. I was reading something that was saying she was becoming more complex. And I completely disagreed with it because the argument was that like in past seasons, her character was criticized for a pro- cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. right. and that in this season she's a lot more self-aware about it, where she'll make a comment about how she's appropriating. But that to me isn't character growth. That's addressing yes. L- that's addressing audience. That's issues. acknowledging that you and, have a
0: Twitter account. Yes, right.
2: exactly. And it's not like <laughs> it also it came from another de-
1: character, right? The gay Latino guy. He's the one who like tells oh, Alana I'm, you shouldn't right. wear. You know when you wear la- Latino right. earrings. That might be appropriation. Right. Whereas I actually sort of think when Alana would make jokes about like craving pink dick, that was a much more complex joke earlier on in like the first season Mm -hmm. than this cultural appropriation jab, which to me felt kind of tired.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention also that that, that's an aspect of the show where I remember this time last year, I was reading a lot of comments, the fact that um, Broad City was doing much better what girls tried to do. Which is show that kind of oblivious um cluelessness of white upper middle class twenty something people in the city in New York specifically, and I didn't think it was true at the time, and I think it's definitely not true now mm-hmm. and yeah. and uh yes, they're different shows, yes, they're different shows, but I think on that specific point, I think girls is much more multi layered sophisticated, not perfect by any stretch, but there's just there's more moving parts, there's more layers of ambition to the way that they attack that
2: completely and You know, I think with Abby and Alana, the problem becomes, especially with Alana, again, I think her character is just way too two-dimensional. With Abby, you see a little bit more emotion, a little bit more, like, you see her feelings. Where with Alana, she just doesn't feel quite like a real person sometimes. Yeah, I was going to say, she's a little,
0: she's verging on, like, Fonzie or JJ or somebody. Like, one of those 1970s sidekick characters, like, who takes over the show.
2: Yeah, I think another issue this season has been some of the plot points. Mm. You know, the co-op, the DMV, DMV,
0: yeah,
2: the you know, getting a security tag tuck stuck on her shirt. Like we feel like we've seen these in different iterations. Yes, the rat episode. It was pretty good, but it was also not as good as the Storm episode from season one. Right. So you have these, like, <laughs> points of comparison to make. Right. That's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I laughed just thinking about that. one. That <laughs> it's one so was, good. It was, good it, was it was a classic. Yeah. And there are, here and there, there are moments that I think are absolutely inspired. Like when they go to the warehouse sale and it's basically, it's like Last Chopper out of Saigon. Like people are, like, rolling yeah. around and punching each other in the face trying to get these clothes. <laughs> it was great. It was like, it was almost like, like they were a couple of beats away from being. Like the Battle of the Newscasters and anchor yeah, you know, like i and I actually wouldn't mind seeing them push things even further, yeah, and that might be the a way that might be a way to sort of liven things up, and in fact, that's something that Seinfeld did over time and Seinfeld um, I think people maybe tend to forget unless they have watched it recently, how many different iterations of Seinfeld that there were, like it went from being a very low key kind of situationally based almost like a Louis kind of approach where mm-hmm. nothing happened that couldn't happen in life to being increasingly ludicrous and the plotting was increasingly complex, like where there would be like A, B, C, and D plots and they would all converge at the end with like, you know, Kramer hitting a golf ball into a whale's blowhole or something like that. <laughs> and and you've completely left the realm of the real and it's fine.
2: Yeah. No, I, I I think there have been some moments like this this season that have been promising. And, you know, I don't think the show is like completely just off like can't be good anymore i just think you can have a bad season and you can have a bad season oh i think (laughs) the hillary clinton thing also really rubbed people the wrong way rubbed me the wrong wrong way way too i just don't like them putting that it felt so forced it didn't feel like the characters would actually support hillary just because the actors do doesn't mean the characters do yep Like you have this meeting where they're basically telling, giving you all these reasons why you should be voting for her. Yeah. And it feels, their motivations are not. It
1: was just a PSA. Right.
2: It was a PSA. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also at odds with the way that they often portray the, the, and I put this in air quotes, political awareness of the characters. Uh Like this is a show where, you know. Two friends will be eating in a sidewalk cafe and one of them is wearing basically a chastity belt to protest the treatment of women in Saudi Arabia and then they take the moment to kind of yell at the waiter because the mimosa that they like is not available. You know, like <laughs> right, it's like that's, right. that's a kind of a brilliant sort of broad city. Like broad city is very, very good at those kinds of moments where the, the true obliviousness of the characters is revealed like in the space of five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, though, uh, this idea that... Um, Introducing a dramatic element is a way to liven up a dr- a comedy. I think that's true, but I've been looking at a lot of old sitcoms recently for research purposes, and I'm struck by how tonally sophisticated a lot of these '70s sitcoms were. Like in the mm-hmm. way that they could switch back between comedy and drama mm-hmm. within the space of an episode, and they could have you know they could have a kind of a heartbreaking monologue. And then they could go back to farce and everybody just accepted it. And I sometimes wonder if like what we think of as as greater sophistication in comic storytelling now is actually a step backwards. Like I feel like we were more able to process these different modes, you know, like I I don't know exactly why I mean that. It's just I just think that it's I think there's a temptation to think that whatever is popular now is more sophisticated than what was popular 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it may not necessarily be true.
2: No, that's fair. And it's a delicate balance. And sometimes with shows that veer a little bit more towards drama, you can't really tell if they're a comedy anymore. So you, right. you, it's not clear. Like with the, with the 70s shows, I think there was a clear sense that this is a comedy, but they also can just do drama really well.
0: They can. And one, one of my favorite examples of that, and I was just talking about it with friends last week, was uh, there's an episode of WKRP where Tim Reed's character Venus Flytrap is revealed to have gone AWOL from service in Vietnam. And there's a scene near the end of that episode where he tells Mr. Carlson, the station manager, who was a World War II veteran, about the reason why he left. And and it's because there was an interrogation. Uh, it was a war crime. Basically, it was a war crime situation. And this whole monologue is not funny at all. It's like it's like It's basically a little dramatic scene in the middle of this sitcom episode. But it plays. It really, really plays. It's just beautiful and touching. And then they go back to being funny. Yeah, you know they bring it out. They bring you out of the drama zone with like one or two lines. It's it's amazing, and um, I don't know that there are a whole lot of shows on the air that are doing that. Well, do you know. feel like Blackish sort of accomplished that with the
1: police brutality? They episode?
0: did, and in fact, I uh, that's I, I wrote this piece talking about the Norman Lear tradition and right. how the Norman Lear tradition was sort of carried forward by Blackish and I think they are very very good at it. Although a few people I know who are fan, as big a, show, a fan of Blackish as I am complained that that episode was too preachy. Mm. I didn't feel that way, but I understand why people would say that. This is like a drum that I beat a lot, but but uh this idea that we are all more politically and culturally enlightened and more artistically sophisticated. Mm. As audience members, than any previous generation is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. it's bullshit, and in a lot of ways, we're more, we're more conservative, more reactionary about a lot of things than than previous generations were. And and I always think of this instance when I was in college, when my film professor showed us Singing in the Rain. This was like in the eighties. And large numbers of kids in the audience were laughing at it. Like every time somebody opened their mouth and a song came out, they laughed, like they laughed derisively because this was the era of MTV when musical numbers were done like as music videos, Mm -hmm. not like that way. And he said, you know, the fact that mass audiences could process this, millions and millions of people could process this and they didn't have any trouble accepting it and you can't accept it tells me that you're not more sophisticated. You're actually less sophisticated than your parents and grandparents were. And that always stuck with me, I love and, I, that. and I always think about that, and I always think like, are we rejecting this old thing because it's really primitive, or, or or have we just lost that part of our brain that allows us to appreciate this piece of art?
2: I think that's so true. I think that's all, a lot of people watch, oh, can't handle classic movies because they're too melodramatic, but <laughs> it's maybe we right. just can't. We don't know how to process melodrama as well anymore. Well,
0: we do, but it's, you know, it's got to be they got to be wearing like capes and armor. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Coming up, we'll speak to Michelle Monaghan, but first, a message from our sponsors.
0: I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my
2: heart
0: and I'm ready for love. Let the stormy clouds chase. Support for the Vulture TV podcast comes from the Stars series The Girlfriend Experience, a new drama from executive producer Steven Soderbergh. Riley Keough stars as Christine Reed, a second-year law school student who is introduced to the seductive world of transactional relationships, providing emotional and sexual intimacy at a very high price. Juggling two different lives, Christine quickly finds herself attracted to the rush of control and power, but soon realizes that everything comes at a cost. Binge the entire season beginning April 10th, only on Stars. Sarah. Cal, you're here. I'm here. Oh, yeah. good to see you. Good to see you. I, I somehow managed to avoid the East Coast winters for three years, and now I'm here. You're gonna have to be my little ray of California sunshine.
3: <laughs> please don't tell me you're already flirting with me. Of course
0: not. I would never flirt with you. <laughs> Speaking of which, how's Eddie? He's great.
3: He just got back from 6R.
0: Oh, nice, Scotty, he must be flying. Yeah. What?
3: Nothing.
1: You're sad, Sarah.
2: No, I'm not. I just didn't sleep well last night. Right, well. Michelle Monahan stars in Hulu's new drama, The Path, alongside Aaron Paul and Hugh Dancy. The show follows a group of people who belong to a cult, called Meyerism Ahead of the Pat's March 30th premiere, I spoke to Michelle about playing one of the cult's truest believers, the differences between working for Hulu and HBO, and what she thought of those feminist critiques of True Detective. So how did you get involved with this project? What Can you just take me through the initial stages? Sure. You know, Jason and Jessica sent me the project.
3: I had been looking to do something um, along the lines of streaming or, or cable, Um, after I had uh, such a positive experience on True Detective. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, everything that I was reading sort of paled in comparison to that. It sort of ruined me that show. And honestly, The Path was the first thing that I had read that really um, excited me uh, and that I felt like it was a very unique opportunity and a a really um, special world that I hadn't really um, seen explored before. And I saw a character that was very complicated and uh, somewhat I thought that I would like to peel the layers back on, so to speak. And I sat down with them and heard their vision for the show and saw the other kinds of actors that they were considering. And it became clear to me that this was something that I wanted to do.
2: When you started having those conversations, were Aaron Paul and Hugh Dancy attached at the time?
3: No, I was the first to sign on, and then it was about a month later, I think, that Aaron uh, signed on, and then about another month after that, I think that Hugh signed on.
2: Once Aaron Paul, you know, the chemistry with you and him is, is really great. That's really the heart of the show, is that you can really mm-hmm. feel like there's this love between them.
3: Thank you. We do have great chemistry, and it's a joy to work with him because he is such a giving actor and he's vulnerable and we have lots of intimate and emotional scenes. And so it was a pleasure, you know, to get to work with him. And, you know, we were just fortunate. We'd known each other. We actually worked together many years ago on mission impossible three and we've remained friendly over the course of, you know, the years, you know, he's just a really laid back actor, takes his job very professionally, He's very respectful. And I think we're very similar personally and professionally. And so um, it's just been a really great match. In what ways are you guys similar? Well, I think that we're both, we don't take anything too seriously. Like mm-hmm. we, we love to have a good time. Mostly all of the, um, the scenes um, that you see us doing are really laced with a lot of laughing fits. So <laughs> when I actually see the scenes, I can't even believe they're as dramatic as they are. Because yeah. Typically, we have to stop the camera and just um, wait for 10 minutes while we sort of decide to be professional again. <laughs>
2: um,
3: but I think that's just a comfort level that you get to enjoy with somebody when you're, you know, working together as um, intimately as that. Uh, we are also very, we rely on our instincts, you know, heavily rely on our instincts. So I think that we're both very kind of grounded performers and, um, you know, the work comes from a very authentic place. We just really dive, um, you know, head first into scenes. You know, we neither of us shy away from, um, you know, those big scenes. We both really um, thrive in those moments. So um, it's very nice to have somebody who operates on that same level.
2: That definitely comes across. You really feel this kind of um, in-the-moment presentness as you guys are acting. Did, did you also, how much research did you have to do for this in terms of studying cults?
3: Well there wasn't really anything in particular I mean I think my um, the general research that I've done you know is really that the idea of religion faith movements cult all of that is such a universal theme that you know you can't help but sort of just living in the world you become privy to you know the mm-hmm. way that um, religion or faith everything impacts it, it affects People greatly in very good ways and very, um, you know, sometimes in extreme ways, um, not so great ways. The idea that our movement is fictional and it's based and inspired by a number of different movements and faith allowed us a real freedom in terms of um, creating a very unique and special world and character. I didn't feel like we had the normal constraints. I would say it was more of a collaboration as a result of all the work that Jessica Goldberg had put into kind of creating what the tenets were of this specific movement mm-hmm. and um, like the the glossary of terms that we would use and that would sort of serve as our guide into what the religion was. And so, you know, I did a lot of res- like personal research into what I thought this person was, a lot of character work, you know, in terms of... Her convictions and um, how devout she was, and in terms of she chooses her faith over her family, and I found that to be so interesting. I think that's what really struck me as a really a real challenge to play, um, but also very um, interesting. Getting into that headspace is probably the most work and the most um, rewarding when you start to sort of feel that pay off emotionally.
2: Did you grow up with any faith? I did. I grew up um, Catholic. It was
3: um, a wonderful foundation to have had. Um, I really lived by that golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everybody sort of goes on that spiritual journey at some point in their lives. I think that we're all universally looking for answers. And um, I think that's what's great about the show is that people will really identify with it.
2: Was there anything particular that you identified with in terms of like, oh, this is similar to maybe how I was raised with religion?
3: Well, I, I just think sense of community. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's one of the, the great aspects of, of any uh, movement or religion or any faith. Is that there's a real support network, you know. It's, yeah. Religion is all about um, having that fulfillment and feeling um, welcome and that inclusivity. And I love that aspect of the show that when people are really down and out and they're in desperate need of help, you know, lost souls, you know, that there are people there willing to sort of um, take you in. And sometimes, you know, people can exploit those lost souls as well. And I think that's what's sort of, that's what's really compelling about the show is that you really see all the good that these people are doing and they're very well-intentioned and Sometimes as the as the power struggles come up and the relationships are 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 getting a little bit muddy, you start to see not just the black and white or the right or wrong or the sinner or the saint. You start to you start to live in that gray area, and I think that's when the show becomes very riveting.
2: Yeah, your your character Sarah, you know, she grew up with this with the Meyerist movement, I guess, Um, and she seems you know she's such a believer, but there's also this the sense that there's just so many layers to her character that are in the way you play it. And is she as much of a believer as she seems to be? Or is she kind of just clinging to this? Yeah.
3: (laughs) I think she is. Yeah, you know, it's like I see Sarah and she is a... A wife and a mother, but above all of those things, she is a devout follower of the movement. And perhaps to her own detriment, really, because she's very uh, she's tunnel vision. I mean, I consider her, her really the matriarch of the movement, and she's very strong. And she has very you know she's very controlled as a result of her convictions. I find that you know people who have a strong sense of faith have a really good sense of themselves, seemingly. She's very much calm, cool, and collected until she's not. And Mm -hmm. then when the world starts to implode around her is what I find as an actor very interesting because she starts to unravel a little bit. You know, she's in quicksand almost, Mm -hmm. and she's trying to do anything to sort of recover and keep everything in this own little box, you know. And um, when it doesn't work that way, it's um, very unsettling for her and very unnerving.
2: Were there ever moments where you couldn't quite discern what her thinking was, where you had to, you know, say, go back to the writers?
3: Yeah, definitely. All the way through, you know, I'm, I'm always asking a lot of questions. And I tend to not gravitate towards characters that I, that I understand who they are right away. And this was definitely a character that I knew was going to be like an onion. And not only that, um, because of I felt like she was very complex, but by the nature of what you do in episodic shows. You know, you all of a sudden you start working and then the writers write something that p- really plays to what you're doing or really just throws you for a loop. So you have to be really um, nimble. So, yeah, there at time, you know, there, I've had to ask a lot of questions. I've, yeah, I've even said to Jessica um, Goldberg, um, at times, I, I think I need to unburden. I think I need. Right. To
2: unburden. I'm feeling, I was going to you know, ask, do you use those use, terms? Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I do. I do a lot of that. Actually, I said that to. I think Aaron, I, I need to unburden. He's like, oh, what? Tell me what's wrong. And he's looking me straight in the eye. Um, it's kind of <laughs> funny how we've actually used uh, that terminology now in real life. It's interesting the world because, in terms of the relationships, I feel like you know, I'm very connected to Eddie, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, but we're obviously going through our marital problems. And with Cal, played by Hugh Dancy, who's a dynamite actor, um, he has this magnetism as our, you know, as people refer to him as our cult leader. Mm -hmm. I find that I have a, a spiritual connection to him. And I actually find that as my character, I find that to be um, actually a little bit even more intimate than just the normal emotional, physical connection that I have with um, Eddie's character. So I really try to understand what that intimacy yeah. is and how that can really kind of connect you. we start to explore that in this season, what that means to be able to have a real spiritual connection with somebody and how that informs a relationship that is um, seemingly platonic. hmm
2: You know, this is a show ostensibly about a cult, but I'm curious what kinds of themes really attracted you to it. Like that what you're talking about now is very interesting in terms of the different types of emotional connections we have with people.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that you, you know, I think people in general, you have particular connections with with various people. You can have an emotional connection. You can have a um, physical connection. You can, you hopefully ideal, ideally in in your lifetime, we'll find one who, one person who inhabits all of those, yeah. you know, I felt like because Sarah is so convicted and that the ultimate betrayal would not be, um, telling her that you had an affair with somebody, the ultimate betrayal for Sarah and Sarah's eyes is for you to say that you're a non-believer. So that made me think, well, what would be the, other extreme of that. And that would be to have somebody as convicted and as devout as she is, is probably one of the most attractive things, qualities that you could could possess. And I think she recognizes that in Cal, Um, He came to the movement at a very young age and her family really supported him. He was a lost soul. And so she's always been a protector of him, a real nurturer. And he's somebody who's also protecting their movement, and so um, you know, I think there's a very significant attraction there, and one
2: that she doesn't necessarily even recognize. You act so much with your eyes on the show. They have there's so much Aww, intense focus. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's amazing. I was wondering how you, just how you cons- how you thought about that in creating this character. It's truly, truly my favorite kind of acting.
3: You know, I think it's really important in this particular character because they practice transparency, Mm
2: -hmm. which
3: is, you know, they live in complete and utter truth. So I feel like if maybe they're not telling the truth. You know, maybe they're not telling the truth with their eyes. The subtext in this show is so important. And I just find that in real life people say so much without actually really speaking. I think that's generally how most relationships are, and we don't really explore that much on television because we feel like we need to say um, Mm -hmm. everything so everybody sort of knows what the plot line is or the story is, And, and I feel like that's one of the reasons that I like being with Hulu. They don't mind having the show breathe. You know, one of my very favorite scenes is in the first episode, and Um, My character follows um, Eddie, my husband, um, to a hotel, and she Mm -hmm. watches him walk into a hotel room to meet seemingly a woman that he's having an affair with, and they cut that, you know, beautifully and, you know, used one of those amazing old-school lenses and did a slow push-in, and it feels very cinematic, and it really, um, and there's no words spoken in the scene, and you're just allowed to sort of act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's powerful. It's very impactful.
2: Have you noticed any differences in working on a Hulu show versus an HBO one?
3: Well, you know what? It was interesting on HBO because, and this was also very unique um, to them, but we had all eight episodes when I signed on for True Detective. It was one director, Carrie Fukunaga. So it really felt like we were making one big movie, mm-hmm. albeit for, you know, five months, six months. Um, this was very different because I think I'd read maybe two episodes um, prior to signing on, so I knew particular plot points that they wanted to happen. But it was an incredible writers' room that we were able to kind of go in and sit down and share with them ideas or experiences, and that they would try to incorporate them perhaps into the into the script. And we don't have a lot of cooks in the kitchen on set. You know, it's us and the writer and the director. And a producer, and you know, it's really nice and
2: refreshing to um, be encouraged just to go and do what we've been hired to do. Have you dealt much with being typecast? Are there like a certain type of role that comes across your desk over and over again? Listen, I think
3: a lot of women are just typecast in general
2: because they're the girlfriend
3: or the wife, and you know, that's just the nature of the business. It's Challenging at times to, to find the female character being the protagonist, you know, all right. the time.
2: No, I mean on on True Detective, your your character was I loved her, but a a big part of the discussion was also, you know, a feminist critique of the female characters on that show. Did you yeah. did you get approached about that, well, like on Twitter, or how did you feel about all that?
3: Well, it was interesting because I I understood where it was coming from, but. I feel as though it was a a bit of a misguided criticism, and it was something that was really being talked about at the beginning of that series. And I kept thinking to myself, just wait, just wait. Yeah. Episode five and six, because the tables were turned. And for me, you know, that was something that was clearly my... A character choice and it was a creative choice for me as an actress because there wasn't necessarily a lot of meat there um, but what happened in episode six I think um, really informed who this entire woman was was just really um, you know a woman that had been completely underestimated and I kind of liked it because I felt like audiences were underestimating her and I thought well wow this is really gonna pay off then um, and also too I mean I understand you know, what they were saying, but this was clearly also a show that was from the two male um, perspectives. I don't think that you ever saw a shot or a scene from any other character's perspective. Mm -hmm. So that was also the vision for the show. And it probably would have felt odd having the show be about any other character other than those two.
2: Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> okay, let's see if this is here. Let's try it. We'll try it. Right. Thank, Thank you Lord, for the gift of this bread to sustain
3: these vessels, our bodies, so that we, we may, may have the energy to create a more beautiful world and break, break through our blocks and, blocks and barriers in this life and ascend the ladder of enlightenment so that someday we, we may be free of these earthly forms and live as light together, together in the garden. garden. We express deepest gratitude for this day and every day, for
2: the, for the gift of this passage,
3: and that we have found the ladder. There is one Spirit
2: whose name is truth. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at TVQuestions@vulture.com at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephent.
0: I'm Matt zoller and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zollersites. I'm Alex Jung, and you can find me on Twitter at E underscore Alex Jung.
2: Thanks for listening.